1: new york city has a new landmark a little bar in the west village named julius officially recognized by the new york city landmarks preservation commission on december 6th 2022 now it may not look like much from the outside but it's here at this old little bar that one moment of protest set the stage for a political revolution quoting from the Preservation Report, a signature event in the battle of LGBTQ people to gather, socialize, and celebrate openly in bars, restaurants, and other public places. At the unveiling of a historical plaque back in June 2022, the executive director of Village Preservation, Andrew Berman, explained the importance of celebrating places like Julius.
2: Remembering and honoring this history is an enormously important thing to do today so many people know what stonewall is and what it means i can remember when i was growing up never having heard that story never having heard what that was a lot of people worked very very hard over the years to make sure that that history is honored and remembered Julius's and the sip-in is another great example of where and how we need to do that. The fact that there wasn't just one event where suddenly everything changed, but there
1: was a lot of hard work that went before it and a lot of hard work that came after it. And that's part of what we are here to honor tonight. So we thought it would be a great time to revisit our 2019 show on the history of Julius's Bar and a look at the life of gays and lesbians in the mid-20th century. And the show also features an interview with author Hugh Ryan, who was just on a recent show of ours, recorded live at Caveat on the history of Jefferson Market and the Women's House of Detention, which, by the way, is just down the street from Julius's. Plus, there's even a tie-in to the World's Fair of 1964, linking it to our last episode. So thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Hi there, welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. So this month, June 2019, we are celebrating the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Riots, an altercation which took place outside of a West Village bar on the early morning of June 28th, 1969, and an event which led to the birth of the LGBT movement.
3: Now, we recorded a show on Stonewall two years ago, uh, and we recommend that you check that out if you don't already know the basic details of that story. But generally speaking, the whole thing came about because of police crackdowns on gay bars, which were largely controlled by the mob. These crackdowns pushed a community to the brink and led to a major brawl on Christopher Street, which lasted through the morning. But over the next few days, news of that chaotic fight galvanized thousands of people from all walks of life who joined in, protested on the streets, or just witnessed
1: this event and really saw it as a wake-up call. Now, Stonewall is always mentioned, referred to almost like a Big Bang that lesbians, gay men, bisexuals, and transgender people were just suddenly awakened to the cause of gay liberation at this particular moment. As if they hadn't existed before. Right, but that is certainly not the case, especially here in New York City.
3: No, there had been a, a lively and very visible gay scene in the late 19th century and early 20th century here in New York City. That scene, for a number of reasons, had been largely buried and concealed Uh, by decades of cultural and legal oppression, which we'll get into in the show. But a scene still existed in New York. There were still bars that were frequented by the LGBT community. People were on the streets. And by the 1960s, people were tired of
1: living in the shadows. So we'll be zeroing in on the efforts of a handful of young New Yorkers who, in 1966, Took a page from the civil rights movement to stage an unusual demonstration in a small bar in the West Village. Now, this little event, often called the "sip in at Julius," made a very tiny but significant wave towards the fair treatment of gays and lesbians in New York City,
3: and not just here in in Greenwich Village, where the gay liberation movement might have initially taken off. But there was also a fascinating scene outside of Manhattan as well. We're going to speak later in the show to author Hugh Ryan about his new book, When Brooklyn Was Queer, including stories from Coney Island to the Brooklyn Navy Yard. But in the meantime, pull up a bar stool, if they let you, as we visit the circumstances surrounding the 1966 sip-in at Julius. You've given me a two.
1: That was the song I Hear a Symphony by the Supremes, a huge hit for the trio in late 1965, early 1966, and the 45 record would have undoubtedly been in the jukebox at Julius on April 21st, 1966, which is the date of the event that we are about to describe. And that gives us a good soundtrack, but
3: Greg, I want to give us a good visual. Mm -hmm. So for this, you know, many of you are aware of the photo that I'm about to describe, but if you haven't seen it, I would recommend just Googling Julius Sipin Photo. The date is April 21st, 1966, and the scene takes place in Julius's bar, one of the oldest bars in the city that dates back to the 1860s, which is located at the corner of West 10th and Waverly. Now, in the photo, we see four men in their 20s and 30s, They're all wearing dark jackets and white shirts and slim ties. It is 1966 after all, and that's how guys dressed in a gay bar. (laughs) It's a very Mad Men vibe. Their names from left to right are John, Dick, Craig, and Randy. Now, in the photo, we see that they've just been poured drinks. They're surrounded by other men who are drinking. But something is definitely off in the scene because the photo captures an exchange between one of these young men in the middle and the bartender. Now, the bartender, who's probably in his 50s or 60s, is wearing a gray cardigan, white shirt and a tie, and is listening to one of the men tell him something. Something that must have been rather shocking because you can see his surprised reaction. And then you realize that he's actually reached over and is covering one of those drinks. So the bartender in this photo has just refused to let him drink. Mm. Leaving us to wonder what just happened, you know, who are these guys, what did they say, and how was it that Fred McDerra, the photographer for The
1: Village Voice, just happened to be there to capture the moment? Sitting there at the corner with his camera ready to capture this moment in history. That's the story we're about to explore. So that picture was taken in 1966. Mm -hmm. I'm going to take you to an era where it would have been much easier to get a drink if you were these men in Greenwich Village. To a time when the village was filled with lesbian coffee and tea houses and gay bars playing the hottest music. When Broadway plays were often filled with gay male characters. Where you had drag queen balls that drew thousands of spectators. What era would you think I was talking about? Uh, this week? <laughs> I'll probably also this week, but in fact, I'm talking about New York at the very beginning of the 20th century, for until the end of Prohibition, 1933, New York had actually carved out spaces for all sorts of what we would call today LGBT life for lesbians, gay, bisexual, and transgendered people. And you say what we would call
3: today, because our terminology that we use today didn't exist at the time.
1: Yeah, the terminology was very different.
3: And this is a scene that we described, what well, we have talked about in the Mae West show, in the Jimmy Walker, the nightclub mayor in New York during Prohibition. You talked about it last year in the drag show, mm-hmm. the history of drag. Yeah. But still, why is it so hard for us to imagine that this scene existed in the 1920s?
1: Yeah, it almost seems fantastical. But this really did exist in the first third of the 20th century. But by the middle of the 20th century, the city had successfully managed to suppress, if not actually destroy, all of these various scenes. And and was a crackdown on the gay scene caused by the repeal of Prohibition? It certainly did kick it off in, in many respects, because once Prohibition was repealed, the state, or rather the state liquor authority, could regulate the nightlife in order to create a more quote orderly and moral environment and could sweep in shut down bars that then catered to undesirables and starting in the 1930s undesirables also often meant homosexuals we'll also get into this in a bit but prohibition had empowered organized crime. When you outlaw something, Mm. someone else tends to come in and take advantage and provide those services if they're not legal.
3: Which is to say the gay bars didn't completely disappear.
1: They just most of them just became operated by the mob. And so thus they actually had a massive control over almost all of New York nightlife. Not just gay, but the straight world as well. All the way into the time frame of our story here into the 1960s. Now, Tom and I recently had an event with the author George Chauncey, who wrote the landmark book, Gay New York. So I want to quote from his book very specifically on this issue. Quote, The State Liquor Authority closed literally hundreds of bars that welcomed, tolerated, or simply failed to notice the patronage of gay men or lesbians. As a result, while the number of gay bars proliferated in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, most of them lasted only a few months or years, and gay men were forced to move constantly from place to place, dependent on the grapevine to inform them of where the new meeting places were. The best defense if you owned a bar during this period was to feign ignorance that, you know, gay people were your clients, that gay and lesbians were having drinks in your bar. Now, of course, this didn't fool the police, of course, and so they would still shut you down during this period. Knowingly serving a gay and lesbian clientele classified your establishment as, quote, a disorderly house. As a result, it was very costly to keep a gay or lesbian bar open because they were always being closed thus they could only stay open if you had deep pockets and who had deeper pockets than the mob so this would explain why these
3: mafia-owned joints were also charging such steep prices for often watered-down drinks and that money would actually go into paying off the police but that's amazing that you said that gays by their very presence created a disorderly house (laughs) a disorderly house so so Even if they were not behaving in a disorderly fashion, their very presence was deemed disorderly. So those were risks that the bar owners faced. But what about the patrons? I mean, even outside the bar, it was risky to be... To be yourself. To be openly gay in public.
1: I mean, you could be arrested if you were a woman who dressed too much like a man, and of course, vice versa public indecency and cruising of course you could be arrested for some might have less sympathy for that but keep in mind if all the bars are closing down you could be arrested for even sitting in a park bench that happened to be in a certain neighborhood or in a certain park you know where you went to meet people like yourself we didn't have apps back then to meet people and it's You actually had to leave your apartment and you had to interact with other human beings. You had to meet them face to face. Right now. And all of this is just compounded. If you were a gay and lesbian and a person of color, your actions were even more targeted by the police. But these anti-gay
3: attitudes aren't just happening here in New York this is happening across the
1: country. I, I would even say they're more extreme nationally. You know, Even after World War II, thousands of men and women were dishonorably discharged from the armed services for being gay. You had new moral codes that had already been clamped down on Hollywood films, and certainly with the advent of television, that only featured only the most veiled gay and lesbian characters. Right, it was actually against the law to have a gay character. <laughs> yeah. Just imagine if I Love Lucy had a gay twist. We'll never know what that would have been like. It could have even been funnier. Yeah, like if Ethel had actually loved Lucy, <laughs> that, it could have been amazing. If everyone loved Lucy. <laughs> I mean, America during this period was governed by this heightened sense of moral authority and judged those who didn't adhere to this nuclear family ideal. And, and the LGBT community is certainly not alone in facing this during this period. Joseph McCarthy
3: and McCarthyism is in full swing, uh, cracking down on people who are suspected
1: of being communists. Yeah, you may be referring to the Lavender Scare, which was led by Joseph McCarthy and Roy Cohn, a scare which purged thousands of people from jobs. Homosexuals were associated with communist and foreign influence during this very paranoid period.
3: And, and even the medical community
1: was piling on as well. yeah thousands of people underwent conversion therapies during this period. You know, even though there was there was even scholarship by the 1950s that provided like some actual nuance of the human sexual condition, American culture was mostly dominated by paranoid fears, by religious belief and by distorted psychiatric views. Um to quote the author David Carter, quote, by 1961 the laws in America were harsher on homosexuals than those in Cuba, Russia or East Germany, countries that the United States criticized for their despotic ways. None of this is even accounting for the violence against gay Lesbians and transgender people during this period. This is an undocumented number. Most reports, as I was looking, trying to find statistics on this, most reports don't even speculate on anti-gay crimes before 1969 because those, that violence might never have been reported from the aspect of a hate crime. We'll get back to the story of Julius's and the sip-in of 1966 right after this. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly.
3: In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans. Our values, our struggles, Well, so with all of this pressure against lesbian, gays, trans people at the time and the actual threats of physical violence or of losing your job, it's amazing that anybody even found the courage to
1: stand up to it. It is. And I don't mean to say that there was nothing happening in New York. In fact, Greenwich Village continued to be the heart of gay life, continuing into the late 1950s, not only with bars and cafes, but it was also the artistic center of New York City. Harlem also had some establishments for gays and lesbians of color, but its role as a sort of gay center of life had certainly diminished from its heydays in the 1920s and 30s. But our story today is also very political. Mm-hmm. Uh,
3: so, where did these political organizations that would bring about change? Where did they
1: even come from? Well, we actually need to turn our attention out west to California. A daring thing for us to do on the <laughs> yeah, board. Yes, for two political organizations that will influence gay New York will arrive from there. First of all, we have a man named Harry Hay who formed the Mattachine Society in Los Angeles in 1950. Now this was a early gay and lesbian political organization named for a French Renaissance mask group. In 1955, they would open a chapter in New York city. That same year, In San Francisco, another influential group would make an appearance, the Daughters of Belitis, which is the first major lesbian political action group named for an obscure lesbian character from an 1894 poem, The Song of Belitis. They would open their first New York City chapter in 1958. And interestingly, by 1960, both of these organizations... The daughters of Bilitis and the Mattachine Society operated from an office at eleven thirty-three Broadway near Madison Square Park.
3: Well, and it's a good thing that they were here because by nineteen sixty, the city, under the leadership of Mayor Robert Wagner, had decided that they really needed to step up their enforcement and their crackdowns on gay and lesbian bars. In fact, in nineteen sixty nearly all of the known gay bars in the village were closed by the State Liquor Authority. And this effort would be accelerated in a big way in 1963 when the Wagner administration really started trying to, quote, clean up the city, and anticipation of the 1964 World's
1: Fair. Wait, are you telling me there's a Robert Moses angle to this story? <laughs> that he is in some way involved with the closure? Indirectly, at least. Yeah,
3: well, because of Moses's 64-65 World's Fair project out in Fleshing Meadows, Corona Park, because of that, and because the city wanted to project this clean image to, to America that, that New York was not only a safe place to visit, but also a very clean and family-friendly place to visit, they needed to go around and clean up you know, all of what they referred to as those degenerate resorts and those dirty, um, undesirable places. And it wasn't even limited to bars. You know, the terms that they were using, undesirables and deviates, that really cast a very wide net. Our story today is really, you know, it's ironic because it's dealing with, going back to that photo I was talking about, it deals with this group of, you know, mostly tidy-looking white men in jackets and ties— But they are obviously only one part of the queer community that existed at the time. And one really large group that often gets left out of the story were the many queer people of color, and some of them very young teens even, and many of whom lived in the streets. But it's also a group that included amazing personalities who would not at all be ignored, like the amazing Marsha P. Johnson, uh, who was a gender non-conforming performance artist and a drag queen who lived on the streets she was also a very popular and public personality
1: she was like a village celebrity
3: oh absolutely and and a friend to so many of these other younger people from more um, modest means
1: a group who would come roaring back into the public light at the stonewall uprising So it's the early 60s. The city is cracking down uh, establishments for gays and lesbians left and right here. But there are political organizations that are firmly established by this time who begin to take a public stance against some of these restrictions. And if you can
3: believe it, we actually know when probably the very first gay rights demonstration occurred in New York City. And that was in September of 1964, when a small group of men and women staged the very first protest in Lower Manhattan. Now, I need to kind of introduce you to some of these protesters mm-hmm. here. There's a man who was born, Charles Hayden, in New Jersey in 1938, who would later change his name to Randy Wicker. Randy got involved in the in the homophile movement while he was studying at college in Texas, And in 1958, while back in New York on summer break, he became active in this new Mattachine
1: Society that you mentioned. And by homophile, this is sort of an early term for homosexual or gay person.
3: Right. They were referring to themselves as homophiles. However, he wasn't really happy with how the Mattachine Society was operating at the time. They were a bit too conservative for his taste. They were even sometimes, you know, welcoming lectures by psychiatrists who were labeling homosexuality as a disease, as something that needed to be treated. So he was, Randy was pushing the Mattachines to become less conservative and more confrontational and more public. So he formed his own association that was called the Homosexual League of New York in 1962, and he formed it to promote and publish literature in a more activist manner. And that year in 1962, he went really public when he and a small group of his gay friends appeared on a WBAI radio 90-minute special in his apartment. They recorded them just speaking frankly and openly about what it was like to be gay. He was one of the first openly gay people to appear on television on The Les Crane Show on January 31st, 1964. So he had just decided that he wasn't afraid to be out there. But back to that first demonstration. Oh, yes. I I guess Randy Wicker, did he organize this? Yes. He organized the event on Whitehall Street in Lower Manhattan outside of the Armed Forces Induction Center. And it took place on September 19th, 1964. And they were picketing outside of this Army Center for all the reasons that you already talked about, right? Because service members, if they were discovered to be gay could be released from the service with a less-than-honorable blue discharge. Uh, Who were some of the other people that were there? Uh, There were a few other men and women, including a young man from Chicago named Craig Rodwell, who would join him again a few months later, this time outside of the Great Hall at Cooper Union on December 2nd, 1964. What was going on in Cooper Union, then? Oh, there was a psychiatry lecture entitled, Homosexuality, a Disease... By Dr. Paul Dintz of New York Medical College. But on this day, December 2nd, a very small group of protesters, so Randy, who we just met, and then Craig, and another man and a lesbian uh, named Kay Tobin, stood at the entrance with signs demanding that they get to speak as well as a kind of rebuttal.
1: Back to this Craig Rodwell person who was at the uh, at the protest. When did he come to New York? He moved to New York in 1958 when he was just 18 years
3: old. He became involved in the gay activist scene and the the Mattachine Society. He even dated Harvey Milk in the early 1960s. But he would become the vice president of Mattachine Society of New York, working very closely with Randy Wicker, and would go on to help organize future protests, like most notably the one that occurred on April 19th of 1965, outside the United Nations in Dag Hammarskjold Plaza, one day after a similar protest was held outside the White House. Okay, so the mm-hmm. Mattachine Society of D.C., under the leadership of a man named Frank Khomeini, who had coordinated with them, they had this back-to-back protest in D.C. and then one outside of the U.N. They were protesting the treatment of gays and lesbians in Cuba and also in the United States. So they were elevating the gay rights activism to an international level at this point. And here in New York, outside the UN, that protest included Randy and Craig and a man named Dick Leitch, as well as poet Allen Ginsberg.
1: And Ginsberg was quite well known by the mid-1960s.
3: And could certainly help them get a little um, attention in the press. But you mentioned this third person dick leitch right and i hope this isn't too complicated but we've talked about randy then we talked about craig and now we're talking about dick and if you wonder why it's because these are the three men who are in the photo that i explained to you not to just give it away spoiler <laughs> alert but it's that's okay a, that's what's going on here they're very important to the to the formation of mattache new york so dick moved to new york in 1959 and initially settled on the Upper West Side. But a couple years later, he was cruising down along Greenwich Avenue, which Greenwich Avenue, by the way, was a very popular cruising street. Oh. In the early 1960s, it was kind of the main drag. You'd cruise it up to the West Side and then walk down along the piers. Wait, there was a designated path? Yeah, I mean, the circuit... Was to go along Greenwich Avenue, right? Up to the piers, up to the west side. Then down along the piers, back to the street that made it the easiest to get back to the base of Greenwich Avenue, which was Christopher. So people would then take Christopher, not because it was like a particularly gay street at the time, but because it would get them in the most efficient way back to the beginning of Greenwich Avenue. They would
1: crisscross via Christopher.
3: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> anyway, he was he was walking along uh, Greenwich Avenue when he met Craig Rodwell. They dated for a while, and it was Craig who brought Dick Leitch into the Mattachine Society. Uh, Dick was kind of like hesitant at first, but within a couple of years, he would actually climb his way up the leadership and become president of the Mattachine Society of New York in 1965.
1: So there now seems to be some regular gay protests that are happening here by the mid-1960s, joining the other many types of protests that are happening in New York and in the United States. How is the city specifically reacting to these gay protests? Unfortunately, with
3: more crackdowns. In October of 1964, six months after the fair opened, a couple of Democratic leaders from the village were actually demanding that something be done about the gay problem. There were just too many gays congregating at the corner of 8th Street and 6th Avenue. From the New York Times on October 7th, 1964. Police Commissioner Michael J. Murphy plans to increase surveillance of Greenwich Village to curtail loitering and solicitation by homosexuals. Mr. Murphy has communicated his intentions to Edward Koch, the Democratic leader of the village, who heads a drive to rid the area of degenerates and other undesirables. At the end of the article, Mr. Koch said Commissioner Murphy had assured him that more effective measures would be taken to curb activity of homosexuals at Village Square, at 8th Street and the Avenue of the Americas, and along Greenwich Avenue,
1: as well as annoyance by drunks and hoodlums. So Ed Koch was part of this anti-gay crusade okay
3: yes with conscious leadership the police would actually increase their undercover raids and the entrapment of hundreds of gays in late
1: 1964 entrapment you mean people being caught being gay by undercover police right in these in these bars and cafes
3: yeah and you just listener can't see it but you just used air quotes around caught. Because undercover police officers would basically flirt with, uh, come on to other men, and if the other men responded in any way that showed openness or willingness to go along with them or to respond positively to their overtures, could be arrested on the spot by the undercover policemen. But let's also say that this was happening not just in bars, but in gay bathhouses, in cruising areas, and in many cases. Those undercover officers seem to really be into their jobs. Let's just say.
1: So the year is 1965, and if I remember correctly, that is an election year, and that is the final year of Mayor Wagner's tenure here at City Hall. He's replaced by John Lindsay, and he came in. He he brought about like some fresh air
3: and some hopefulness uh, that things would actually change. And and attitudes did change a bit, but the, the crackdowns initially did continue. But another big question that was out there was a legal one. Were gay bars illegal? You mentioned that the State Liquor Authority had been cracking down on them, and that was largely because they chose how to interpret their own laws and how to enforce them. Yet if you looked at the laws on the books... There wasn't actually any law that stated that homosexuals couldn't gather in bars, and there was no actual law that stated that bars couldn't serve
1: homosexuals. The state liquor authority had claimed that the mere presence of gays and lesbians in an establishment made them disorderly. So enter the Matachine Society, specifically
3: Dick, Randy, and Craig, to push this very issue at a bar in the West
1: Village. And we'll serve up the rest of this story and our interview with Hugh Ryan after this. So the Mattachine Society of New York decided that they were going to take the state liquor authority head-on challenge these restrictions on gays and lesbians being served in New York City. What was the game plan here? Well, the plan was to enter a bar,
3: especially one that they knew to be hostile to gays, and declare to the bartender that they were gay and then ask for a drink. And the bartender, they assumed, would refuse to serve them. So then they could take that issue to the court's. On the basis that it violated their their rights And then it wasn't actually against any law
1: And what's interesting is they are clearly inspired By the things that are happening in the South The protests and sit-ins mm-hmm. uh, That are happening at lunch counters um, With African Americans going in and making protests that way So this is inspired by that In a way it's a,
3: an almost cheeky reference In that they're calling it a sip-in Rather than a sit-in but also showing that, yeah, they they were part of this growing civil
1: rights activism that was happening at the time. But how would they prove that any of this was happening? This is the era before camera phones, by <laughs> the way.
3: But they did have connections in the press and they invited the press along and they targeted a bar in the East Village, the Ukrainian-American Village Restaurant. It was located at St. Mark's and Third Avenue. This was a bar that had a sign in the window that stated, if you are gay, please go away. So yeah, it seemed like a pretty good place to
1: start. (laughs) Like waving a red cape. So what happened when they did go in and order a drink?
3: Well, hold on. The four guys headed to the restaurant, but unfortunately... The New York Times had arrived there before them and asked the restaurant's manager for a response to what was about to happen, but they ended up tipping him off to the fact that these guys were coming to make a statement. And so unfortunate because when by the time they got there, the manager had actually closed up early. He just he found out that they were on their way and he just closed up. The young men were left without
1: a target. So what do you do now? Uh, No Ukrainian restaurant. So what was next? Well, and this is where the story kind of starts feeling like a road trip
3: movie because they, they walked across 8th Street. Okay, picture it. From 3rd Avenue over to 6th Avenue where there was a Howard Johnson's at the corner of 8th and Greenwich. They go in, they take their seats, and Dick Leitch reads a statement to the waitress proclaiming themselves to be homosexuals and asks to be served. And according to David Carter... In his excellent book, Stonewall, The Riots That Sparked the Gay Revolution, quote, the manager, Emile Varela, doubles over in laughter and ordered a waiter to bring the men bourbons, saying that he
1: knew of no regulation against serving homosexuals. That bar owner was doing his own thing there, so that's essentially strike two. Mm -hmm. Um, What next?
3: Well, then they went to another bar called Waikiki, um, where once Ooh, again... That sounds fun. Too much fun. They were served another round of, you know, oh. of drinks. You know, nobody seemed to care that they announced themselves as gay. So then they finally go to Julius. Just a couple of blocks away, yes. The management of Julius was already kind of nervous because a priest had recently been arrested there for solicitation, I think entrapment, and the bar was actually at risk of losing their liquor license. There was a sign on the window stating, this is a rated premises. They walked in to this crowded bar, prepared to make their way up to the bar. I'm going to let Dick Leitch himself explain what happened next.
0: And so we all went around to, Ju- to Julius's and we walked in, <laughs> walked up to the bar and the man put the glasses down and asked us what well, we wanted. were all these queens that are having cocktails at four o'clock in the afternoon? Very elegant, very grand queens in those days at Julius's. They all wore little three-piece suits and held their cigarettes like this and everything. It was just like 66. and They were all worked in Madison Avenue or whatever. They were just so grand. And they were getting out of work and having cocktails. And here we were. And so we go walking in. We ask for a drink. And the guy started to make us drink. And we handed him the little note. He said, what does it say? I don't have my glasses or I can't read it. And so Craig or somebody read the note to him. And he covered the glasses with his hand. He said, I can't serve you if you're gay. You know that. You're with the Madison Society. You know it's against the law to serve homosexuals. And we got busted last week. We got cops sitting at the damn door. We got to go to court. Nah, 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 we can't serve you. So we didn't get served. And so the press, you know, what's his name, took these pictures and, and the Times did a story and the Post did a story and all that. And so we got our coverage and we were very pleased with ourselves. How can you not serve food and liquor to homosexuals? Don't they eat and drink? And people were talking about it. And it was on the talk shows. It became kind of an issue. And that
1: clip is courtesy the podcast Making Gay History by Eric Marcus, a remarkable show featuring original recordings that Eric made of dozens of LGBT pioneers and activists.
3: That photo would run in the next week's Village Voice, remember it was a weekly, but the next day's New York Times would carry the story with the headline, Three Deviates Invite Exclusion by Bars but they visit four before being refused service in a test of SLA rules. What ended up happening next? I mean, after all this press attention. After the sip-in, the SLA would clarify its position that homosexuals could be in bars and could be served as long as they were not, quote, disorderly, which is still kind of problematic. Vague here. <laughs> right. But because of this, because of the sip-in at Julius, no longer did the very presence of homosexuals make a bar, quote, disorderly. And furthermore, by this point, the police practice of entrapment had also ended. So really, we had come a long way.
1: A very small step and a preview of what was to come here in the village in the 1960s. Julius Barr is on the National Register of Historic Places. And to quote from the National Park Service entry, quote, The reaction by the State Liquor Authority and the newly empowered New York City Commission on Human Rights resulted in a change in policy and the birth of a more open gay bar culture. Scholars of gay history consider the sip-in at Julius as a key event leading to the growth of legitimate gay bars and the development of the bar as the central social space for urban gay men and women. Now, Tom, we have a little bit more of this story to tell because we want to talk to author Hugh Ryan about his new book, When Brooklyn Was Queer, to remind us that gay life here in New York City didn't just happen in the village. But why don't we do that interview in the, quote, central social space for urban gay men and women? Are you saying what I think you're saying? Why don't we go meet Hugh and grab a drink at Julius?
3: Alright Greg, well we made it to Julius's
1: Yes, we're here in the West Village in the classic bar Julius, in fact we are sitting at the old wooden bar here you might hear from the creakiness of it Sitting like members of the Mattachine Society themselves,
3: (laughs) and we are not alone we have the great privilege of being joined by Hugh Ryan, the author of When
1: Brooklyn Was Queer, hi Hugh Hi, guys. Great to join you. I assume you've been here to Julius a few times in your life. (laughs) Once or twice.
2: Uh, Actually, it was for a long time my preferred bar in the West Village because I didn't drink. And so being able to come here like for the food and the jukebox, of course. Oh, Mm. yeah,
1: that's, that's true. The music's good.
2: It made it the perfect place to come when people said,
1: let's get drinks in the West Village. And to describe the place, it really wears its history on the walls. As you, as you go towards the back room, there are framed photographs, um, historical photographs. And in, in fact, if you go to the very f- far back room, there is a photo of the sip itself, which took place on this bar over 53 years ago. In the front of the bar, uh, when you first walk in, you see uh, those
3: tables over there, which use actual beer barrels as seats. And those are beer barrels from the late 19th century from the Jacob Rupert Brewery uh, up in Yorkville in
1: the late 19th century. We wanted to speak with you, Hugh, because We have just spent most of this show in a very small geographical place of the village. And this is really where the gay liberation movement in New York City was born, of course. But we also wanted to be reminded of the fact that, you know, this is not isolated to this particular neighborhood. And in fact, the gay world of New York City has extended far beyond these borders to include Brooklyn. How did you decide to focus a book specifically on the queer scene in Brooklyn and the history of that? It actually was pretty easy. One day I realized
2: that I knew absolutely nothing about the queer history of Brooklyn. It was this moment of stunning realization of my own ignorance. I had Mm -hmm. lived in Brooklyn for years. I was a women's studies major in college. I'd read tons of books of gay history, even ones about New York. And one day I thought about it and I was like, wait, all I know is the history of Manhattan. As far as Brooklyn goes, I knew Walt Whitman. I knew there was cruising in Prospect
3: Park. And I knew that Park Slope was once known as Dyke Slope. And that was it. And as you write about it in your book, there was so much more to the queer scene in Brooklyn than that, especially considering uh, the very active Navy Yard.
2: Yes, the Navy Yard, in fact, the waterfront as a whole, from Red Hook down to Coney Island, provided space, jobs, privacy, freedom, all the things that allowed
3: queer people to live queer lives and then end up in the historical record. So between the Navy Yard and then also Coney Island, where we you spend a lot of time in the book. Yeah, Coney Island is in
2: fact one of my favorite places in the city and one of my favorite places to research because you can not only talk about kind of the, the big urban history of Robert Moses and city planning, but you can talk about the burlesque dancers in the bars and you can talk about the intersex people who worked in the sideshow and the models who were on the beach in the 1950s getting uh, photographed in those tiny little skimpy bathing suits for physique and beefcake magazines
3: but these scenes that are so active like in the Navy Yard out at Coney Island and elsewhere uh, many of them by the time of our show by the 1960s had changed forever
2: oh absolutely you know the Brooklyn waterfront is really powerful from the early 1800s to about World War II. and after that when it starts to hit the skids the communities that it supported including the queer ones rapidly fold up disappear and kind of go underground but, but they didn't disappear, they just went underground. Yeah, the ones that existed went underground. Some of them continued to exist, so in Brooklyn Heights you have this strong but sub-Rosa community along Montague Street. Some of them left the area entirely and migrated to spaces in Harlem or the West Village and some of them in leaving provided space for new spaces to open up. Uh, this waterfront communities that I trace, they might die in the 50s and 60s, but at that same moment we provide the space and the spark for the black queer community that evolved in Harlem or the lesbian community that involves in Park Slope
3: that many just moved to other neighborhoods in the city yes and in fact that's part of the
2: story now that we're sitting in Julius's of Stonewall and the West Village right those spaces are closing down in Brooklyn and other places outside Manhattan those people have to go somewhere and they end up here
3: and as we've discussed at the West Village is so well connected by public transportation I mean where we're sitting right here at Julius's We could walk, you know, to any number of subway lines or path trains within just minutes. Yep, it's well connected. It has some of the oldest queer
2: history in the city and the people with the most money and the most privilege. Therefore, they're able to protect their space. And it has some really weird features like the Women's House of Detention, which was the prison that used to be here, which provided street level visibility for lesbians and gender nonconforming people in the most homophobic decades in America. And so for all those reasons, queer people have come again and again to the village, even when it's not safe in other places.
1: You know there's an, another important connection to to the, this the village scene that we're talking about today and something important that you mentioned in your book and that is the artistic life of Brooklyn Heights and how that fostered a gay world also and the kind of parlors and houses of some of these prominent artists and writers. And that's sort of a connection too of what's happening in the village as well because of course you have all the queer writers of of the village maybe not connected in a politically activist way, but they're sort of creating a sort of foundation for this gay scene too. I assume that's partially why it's also in Brooklyn Heights, right? Absolutely, in fact,
2: Brooklyn Heights throughout the 20s gets called the Greenwich Village of Brooklyn or Bohemian Brooklyn. And you get people moving back and forth between them, Hart Crane, Marianne Moore. These people are active in the village, but they're also active in Brooklyn Heights. And then by the 40s, you've got places like 7 Midall Street, which is one of the most important sort of artist collective in America in the mid 20th century, where W.H. Auden lives With Carson McCullers, and Gypsy Rose Lee, and Richard Wright, and George Davies. Like, everyone you ever want to meet in the 40s passes through one house in Brooklyn. But they've got these strong connections to Greenwich Village. They've all lived there, they work there, they
3: socialize there. So they really knit these two neighborhoods together, just like the subway itself. And, and one of the reasons that those neighborhoods and those communities disappeared was because of huge urban renewal projects, like the BQE, Robert Moses's various plans, which as you write about, really cut off the waterfront from the population.
2: Yeah, the waterfront was already having some economic problems, and then Moses comes in and he builds this ring of highways. If you look at a map of modern Brooklyn, you'll see that there are highways cutting off the entire waterfront from the rest of the, the city. And all of those were built by Robert Moses between the 1930s and the 1960s. So not only is the waterfront dying, but now it's completely separated from everywhere else. It's hard to get to. You've got to cross these awful highways with no shoulders
3: and no sidewalks, and
2: no one would ever do that.
3: But but it seems like, though, that could also make it kind of cruisier, no? I mean, like, if it's sort of hard to get to... It does make
2: some of those areas cruising. So we talk a lot about the piers here in the West Village. Uh, We know from people like David Warnerovich that there was cruising going on in the piers and around Brooklyn Bridge in Brooklyn in the 70s as well. It's smaller scale, though, because also at that same time, those urban renewal projects, one of the other things they do is they make the population of Brooklyn shrink for the first time in over 140 years. So Brooklyn is shrinking, and the cruising grounds are getting smaller. And so it still happens, and new people, the the demographics of Brooklyn changed greatly during this time. Before 1940, Brooklyn is never less than 98% white, and often it's 99% white, and that's not true afterwards. And so you see a whole new areas and uh, populations cruising in Brooklyn in the 60s, 70s,
3: 80s, and 90s, but it is smaller, and it is underground. And also, of course, the closure of the Navy Yard meant that so many people who had worked in the Navy, and so many people who were gay who had who had been in the service were no longer stationed there or working out of that facility.
2: Yeah, this, the service members were no longer there, and in fact, the civilian workers, including many of them, women factory workers during World War II, all lose their jobs. Uh, many of them had lost their jobs before the Navy Yard closed down. It goes from a high of having like seventy thousand people employed there during World War II down to like five thousand by the time it closes in 1966. That really puts a nail in the coffin for the waterfront economy. There's just not those levels of industry left after that. And the Navy Yard, not only does it close down those jobs, but they're all the attendant jobs. Everything from the folks who run the bars that the sailors go to, many of which were friendly for queer people, if not entirely queer, to the sex workers who are either
1: being paid by the sailors or who are the sailors themselves often. So we're going to flash forward here to the, to the early 1960s, mid 1960s, and to the gay political activism that is being born here in the village. But there are actually connections even here in the 1960s uh, to Brooklyn that even though some of these gay spaces in Brooklyn may be diminishing, that some of the leaders themselves have Brooklyn connections.
2: Yeah, Curtis DeWeese, who's a leader in the Mattachine Society in the late 50s and early 60s, lived in Brooklyn while working in Mattachine with another, his lover, who was also involved with Mattachine. And he actually told me that the street that they lived on was almost all gay. He didn't know exactly why. He said people in moved Brooklyn in. In Brooklyn Heights? Uh, In Brooklyn, uh, State Street, I believe. Okay. He said, you know, there were some gay people there. When I moved there, more people moved in after I did. And as soon as we realized we were the the density that we had, we started having garden parties. And we all painted our houses similarly. And it just made a queer, temporary, underground, not spoken of, not defined space in Mm. Brooklyn. And he actually worked to create real organizations, real gay organizations as we would think of them today in Brooklyn. The Mattachine Society had these book groups. They were all around Manhattan. In fact, one of them would go on to be very famous in queer history, uh, the West Side Meeting Group, the West Westside Discussion Group. But Brooklyn actually had ones too. In fact, it was the only borough to have more than one book group through the Mattachine Society, except for Manhattan. It had G- Brooklyn as a whole group, and then it had a Brooklyn Heights specific group. And those organizations continue throughout the 60s, providing social space for people to meet, discuss queer politics,
3: and to actually express themselves openly as proud gay people. And, and sometimes they took that fight to the press. You write in your book about some editorials that were being published in the early 1960s in the Brooklyn papers actually addressing, well, it seemed that there were anti-queer editorials being written by anonymous writers, and then some people who actually had courage to stand up and sign their names to rebuttals.
2: Yeah, when Robert Moses uh, does all of this highway building and he destroys all these existing queer spaces, he actually accidentally builds a whole bunch more, one of them being the Brooklyn Promenade, which was built to cover the BQE, and it provides a great view of Manhattan. It's built in 1950 and 51, and as soon as it opens, it's a cruising ground. And by the early 1960s, folks are writing into the Brooklyn press to say, I was assaulted by those princes of the promenade, and by assaulted, they mean hit on. And he complains about this in this long letter. And all of these people write in, signing their names, saying things like, why don't you get to know our homosexual neighbors? They're wonderful people, and they've been here for a long time. And
3: that's in the early 1960s. Um, But you also write that that sort of changed a bit, right? That there were fewer rebuttals as the years went by, suggesting that perhaps there was a change in demographics.
2: Yeah, we see this most clearly over a bar called Bonner's Heights Supper Club. It opens in 1950. It's the first gay bar as we would think of a gay bar in Brooklyn that I can find a record of. And it gets closed down in the early 1960s by the State Liquor Authority. And this was on Montague? On Montague Street, 80 Montague Street. It's a a diner today. It's one of those classic bars that has a switch the bouncer can flip to make the lights blink to let you know (laughs) the police are coming in, (laughs) stop dancing together. Mm -hmm. And when it's it's rated for the final time, because it gets rated a lot, the New York Times writes a whole expose about neighborhoods in the city where homosexual concentration is high. And even though it's based off of a, a closing of a bar in Brooklyn on Montague Street, the only neighborhoods they discuss are Manhattan neighborhoods. And the Brooklyn Press, in their final article ever discussing the queer people in the neighborhood, writes this tiny little unsigned paragraph that says, look, like them or hate them, no one can disagree that homosexuals have been in our neighborhood for a very long time. And the New York Times is ignoring them.
1: And during the 1960s is also the rise of student activism in at New York City universities. Also, Um, those could also be, I suppose, spaces theoretically, where people could finally hear different points of view and find commonalities with each other. So, for instance, NYU had a homophile league during this time, right? Yeah, they actually have the second oldest homophile league in the country. It's founded in... <laughs> in After Columbia.
2: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes. Founded in 1968, Rita Mae Brown, the novelist, is or sort of the main force behind it with a couple of other students. They were partially inspired by the folks at Columbia. She knew them well. And also just by the general liberal and radical social movements of the time. The folks who would go on to found these organizations, to be active in post-Stonewall groups like the Gay Liberation Front and Radical Lesbians... We're often informed by or active in everything from anti-Vietnam War protests to civil rights work to feminism. All of these movements that are happening in the mid-60s inflect and inform the queer organizing that comes after and around that time.
3: Which brings us back then to where we are right now, to Julius, which is actually sort of the perfect convergence of these different elements of the story. Because here we've been talking about bars where people could find community. And we're also talking about activism. And at Julius's, we really have those two converging for the first time together. Activists in a bar making a point and changing eventually the laws that would legalize gay bars first in New York and then, and then throughout the country. Yeah, these homophile organizers who don't get talked about
2: a lot today, the Mattachine Society, the Daughters of Belitis, they do really important work pre-Stonewall. It gets a little bit forgotten because the Stonewall work and the post-Stonewall work is so in-your-face. It's protesting, it's on the streets, and it causes all of this change.
1: But the groundwork laid by those early homophile organizers is really important. Although the the interesting thing to always point out with Stonewall is like the riot the initial interaction on June 28th was not like politically organized it was a spontaneous combustion of outrage an eruption of people who were outraged by by the situation by the police by the mob and that it wasn't until the following days that the, the political organizations actually got involved Yeah, you know, I interviewed one of
2: the Stonewall vets, a guy named Jim Ferrat, and he said something very similar. That first night was this sort of joyous, he likes uprising as opposed to riot, and a spontaneous event of showing their freedom and their joy and resisting the police. And then he went home that night and dialed every lefty that he knew and every radical organization and said, get your ass
1: out there tomorrow, support us, we have been out here supporting you. And all of these organizations were just prepared for this moment. In fact, many of them lived on the same street, right? They were all, like, in the neighborhood. Activists like Marsha P. Johnson, who was there at the riots, then, like, is sort of a through line to future political organizations that um, help grow the movement. Absolutely, and I'm glad you bring up
2: Marsha in particular because it's not just that these activists lived on the same streets. Some of them actually lived on the street in the West Village, Marsha often being one of those. The riots not only bring up all of this queer upset and this queer anger, but also the anger of what often get referred to as street people, many of whom are queer, but who are similarly being mistreated by the cops, being forced off of the streets, not allowed to have public life or public expression. Folks like Marsha P. Johnson are the intersection of those issues, and that's why I think she is such an important hero, because she brings with her into every space that she walks into throughout the 60s and 70s her queerness, her blackness, her femness, her poverty, her history as a sex worker, as someone with mental health issues, all of this, and that is what informs her political organizing, and that's why she is such a hero to so many people today.
3: One final question. If you could bring back any of those gay spaces, what would you bring back? That's definitely
2: a tough question, but I think for me, the Washington Baths, which were a bathhouse at Coney Island in the 1920s and 30s, where they actually had an all-male bathing beauty pageant in 1929, organized by Variety magazine, with Rudy Valley as one of the judges. Everybody shows up, the day of the pageant, and what they don't realize is that all of the contestants are going to be gay men and trans women. Some of them arrive in full drag, wearing makeup, blowing kisses to the cameras. The organizers freak out, you know, the people coming from Manhattan to judge this thing are like, oh my god, it's about the sanctity of the family! This was not what they had anticipated. Not at all. They don't even know who to award because they're so flaming they can't give any of them a prize. <laughs> But the women in the audience from Coney Island think this is hysterical and funny and great and they love it. And it shows me that Coney Island had a culture where not only could queer people find each other in dense enough numbers that they were willing to come out and pose at this beauty pageant that was not organized for gay people,
1: but that the local straight community knew them, recognized them, and loved them too. And so we so have. Let's bring that back. So we have male physique beauty pageants in Coney Island. We have drag balls up in Harlem. And we have five boroughs of all sorts of LGBTQ activity in 1929, right? 90 Absolutely. years ago. So, well, thank you for bringing all of that to light in your book. Everyone should check out When Brooklyn Was Queer. It is an extraordinary, groundbreaking book. Thank you very much for joining us here, Julius. Yeah,
3: thank you for taking the time. And now we will order some chicken fingers.
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah, thank you,
3: guys. Wow, that was, that was so much fun, Greg. And it was amazing to have that chance to hang out with you in the very bar that we've been talking about for this entire show. We raised a toast to history. We raised a chicken finger to history. But now, of course, we've come to that part of the story that we were hinting at with Hugh. In a way, it's an event that we've been hinting at since the beginning of this episode. Now we're we're going to go to a more intense, more consequential event, you could say, that takes place at another gay bar just a
1: block or two away. Let's go forward to June of 1969. In fact, to the early morning of Saturday, June 28th when police raided a bar owned by a member of the Genovese crime family, a bar named Stonewall Inn, on Christopher Street and about a block away from Julius. Now, this bar was infamous for selling watered-down drinks to gay men. It was a fire trap, and it had many other undesirable features, but the mob managed to pay off the police to keep it open. But they would occasionally raid it, and they indeed came a call in this morning, but the patrons who had put up with all of this hassle their entire lives had had enough. So an altercation occurred here between the police and the patrons, which eventually brought out the street kids and passers-by from the neighborhood, gay and straight alike. While activist leaders like Marsha P. Johnson were involved, and then other people like Craig Rodwell, who by this time had opened a bookstore called the Oscar Wilde Memorial Bookstore, which was just a couple blocks away. He later participated in this. This was mostly an organic movement. Over the next few days, people returned to the Stonewall area, first to to be rowdy, to riot, but then to protest. Mattachine and these other groups use the chance to communicate with this unprecedented gathering of gay people from all over the city so from this volatile week a movement was essentially born precisely one year after the event at stonewall and here on christopher street the christopher street liberation day parade the very first new york gay pride parade marched up the island of Manhattan, in the very first large-scale display of LGBT people and their supporters. And that first
3: parade would be organized by none other than Craig Rodwell, who was there at Julius's that night. Craig and a few other friends began planning for that very first march to fall on the anniversary of the Stonewall riots.
1: That parade cemented Stonewall as a historic American moment, and one with meanings and repercussions that people could have only imagined around the bar at Julius in the mid-1960s. For more on the subject, visit our website,
3: BoweryBoysHistory.com. We'll have a companion post that has images and links to many of the things that we've talked about in today's show including a link
1: to our show dedicated to Stonewall. And we'll also link to the Making Gay History podcast to their specific episode featuring an interview with Dick Leitch. So we want to thank Eric Marcus and the folks over at Making Gay History for allowing us to use that clip. A huge... Thank you to Hugh Ryan,
3: author of When Brooklyn Was Queer, and to Helen and the fine folks at Julius's Bar in the West Village. It truly is Mm -hmm. um, (laughs) one of our favorite bars
1: in the city. And it's still a vibrant, happy place in many ways, perhaps more so than ever. For one thing, it's legal. A special shout out to the NYC LGBT Historic Sites Project, which is an initiative to document historic and cultural sites associated with the lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender community in the five boroughs. So they've actually mapped out many dozens of places and many places that we've actually mentioned in the show today.
3: Oh, yeah. I used that website extensively for research on those early marches. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have them all plotted out on a map. So very well done. So, thank you so much for pulling up a bar stool with us at Julius's in the West Village. Thank you very
1: much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon.